Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. I want to read something to you that I hope does not bless you before we get into a message that I trust will bless you. The Bible is under attack. It always has been, okay? But it's so strange that where the authority of the Bible is being challenged, uh, where it's always been challenged by the atheist, the unbeliever, uh, it's being challenged by people who ought to be defending it. And uh, all in the name of tolerance or intellectualism or whatever, I was watching uh, a... uh, ended up listening finally to the whole thing. It was a clip somebody posted. Uh, there's a guy I, 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 uh, who I know. I uh, haven't seen him in a while, but he's, uh, he's a big fan of a particular author, and so he's always reading some book by this guy. And this guy is somebody who uh, used to be a seminary professor, but now he's, he's kind of made his mark as somebody who is reinterpreting the Bible, reimagining. Here's what they really meant is how I would sum up this guy's ministry. And so he had posted a post by this guy, and then somebody else came back and said, hey, you might also like this, and it was a book about the real David. Not the biblical King David, but the real King David. And so, and then there was, he said, oh yeah, that that reminds me of this. And he posts a video of this Harvard uh, divinity professor talking, doing a talk about the historical David. And it was so snarky, and so, it just grieved me. You know, he's, he's saying, oh, we're supposed to believe things like David had nothing to do with killing Nabal. You know, it was God that struck him. And everybody laughs, and he's laughing. And it's like, oh, it's just terrible. But this is the kind of thing we're running into all the time. And, uh, and then I came across this. Somebody in here gave this to me recently, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who you are. Uh, so you can raise your hand and flag me down. Let, let me know. You can do it like now. Hey, Scott, this is about a... Uh, 32-week Bible study cor- course that was done at a church. Uh, that was that was how I thought. I, I thought it may have been. I had, it was either you or somebody else I was thinking of. Uh, it's okay if I read this out loud. And I'm not going to name any names. But this is a this was a 32-week discipleship study led by this pastor. And I'm not even going to tell you what church it was. But this is his, and and week 32, this is his summary. Some basic tenets I tried to get across during uh, Disciple 1, which was the name of this study. Starts with this. God did not write the Bible. Neither did Jesus. The Bible was written by ordinary people who were inspired to do so, just as we are inspired from time to time to do something extraordinary. There is no original autograph of any biblical text. What we have are copies of copies of copies, etc. The earlier the copy, the more reliable the text. History isn't necessarily true or factual. History is written by the victors and or the survivors and are only from their point of view, not the losers or the dead. Stories and legends aren't necessarily false or fictional. It shouldn't be surprising to us if the story or legend is more true to the human situation than history is. Truth is not always factual, and fact is not truthful. It all depends on whose truth or fact it is. The stories of the legendary heroes of the Hebrew Bible, a.k.a. Old Testament, begin with Adam and Eve and end with King David. Noah, Abraham, and his descendants 
uh, were legendary heroes whose lives tell the true story of the people of Israel and of us as well. Most of the kings of Israel and Judah were very historical indeed and not very legendary. Our lives can be both historical and legendary depending on the storyteller. The God of the Hebrew Bible is not a God of wrath, but a God of steadfast and unconditional love, slow to anger and quick to forgive. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. The covenant between God and his chosen people in the Old Testament is still the same covenant between God and his people today. We are the chosen people by baptism. Almost all of the laws and regulations spelled out in the Old Testament, including the Ten Commandments, were written by otherwise unemployed priests during the exile in Babylon from 586 B.C. to around 523 B.C. to give themselves a job to do later. Most Jews... Uh, since 586 have lived in diaspora. Diaspora is any place outside the borders of the Holy Land, uh, a.k.a. Israel, Palestine, Galilee, Judea, etc. The hope of every Jew is to be returned to a restored and redeemed Jerusalem, the hope, uh, the, sorry, the holy city of peace. Likewise, the hope of every Christian is to be returned to a restored and redeemed church. Until then, in the meantime, we too live in our own diaspora the best we can. Jews are confident of their status as the chosen people of God. Jews do not accuse other Jews of being un-Jewish. They are taught from childhood to question everything. Would that we Christians would become more Jewish and not stand for other Christians calling us unchristian, telling us not to raise questions or otherwise intimidating us. There are five Jesuses in the New Testament. In chronological order, Paul's Jesus, Mark's Jesus, Matthew's Jesus, Luke's Jesus, and John's Jesus. Choose your own Jesus. Context is everything when it comes to interpreting the Bible without taking into account uh, the context in which it was written. There are only uninformed opinions. And then here's the note at the bottom of this. This class was given by such and such church. For 32 weeks, we opened the Bible six times. Those are some pretty bold and authoritative statements about a Bible that you opened six times in a 32-week Bible study. And it's pretty pathetic. The scary thing, now there's some truth in there. There's some of that stuff was right. But it's mixed in with so much garbage. And if you didn't read the Bible, how are you going to challenge it? Now why did I just read that to you? I'll tell you why. Because I'm very happy, I'm very excited. We are in Romans now for the ninth week. And I explained to you, I, I explained to you every, practically every week why we've slowed down here, why it's so important that we do this. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a little bit risky as a pastor to, to do this kind of thing because um, expository preaching isn't everybody's cup of tea. People like stories. Like, you know, if, if I get, come up here and preach a dynamite healing message and when we have a healing line and there's testimonies, I love that. I'm all for it. But that's the kind of thing I expect to get a lot of good feedback on because, man, it's, it's in the moment. It's exciting. It serves people. It's, it, it, it's motivating. And it's good. There's nothing wrong with it. Or if, or if there's a testimony that somebody gives. Uh, man, these are the kind of things they are easy to listen to. They're enjoyable. And they do. They challenge us. They help us grow. But when we do a... Uh, almost, we haven't quite done a verse by verse, but we've been, we've been taking our time in this book of Romans. That's the kind of thing that can get people kind of, man, when are we going to get to something good? But I have to tell you, your feedback has been phenomenal. 
I know that the people who have come up to me and said anything, they aren't speaking for everybody in here, and maybe you are uh, bored to tears. (laughs) But by and large, what I'm seeing is a group of believers who are hungry for the Word of God. And this is what's going to make the difference. And what, again, what excites me about this is here we are, you know, three and a half years into our journey through the Bible. We have read enough of the Bible. I think that most of you, I'm confident that most of you cannot just hear what I just read and say, yeah, that doesn't sound right, but you can tell exactly what's wrong with it. Now, wait a second. That is not right. And here's why I know that. You know, it's so easy to make these flip statements about, ah, the Bible was just kind of thrown together by a bunch of men. And, and then if you read it, really read it, you can't possibly come to that conclusion. I, I may have told you the story about a, 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 it was a girl who came into the store that I worked at down in Tulsa. And we used to chit-chat. And she, she, you know, I found out early on in conversation that she was an atheist, you know, a you know, sweet kid, but, but, you know. And she wasn't, you know, rabidly anti-God. She just didn't believe. And then I didn't see her for a while. Then, then she came in the store again. Hey, where have you been? She goes, I was actually in the hospital. Oh, what happened? Well, this happened, this happened. I had a nervous breakdown. Oh, and I wanted to tell you, I believe in God now. What happened? She goes, well, I was bored, and there was nothing to read in the hospital except a Bible. So I started reading it. And as I read it, I thought, there is no way this was written by human beings. Just the Bible itself convinced her that God existed. It really does have that kind of power. Uh, Don't let anybody pull you away from a proper view of scriptural authority. All right? Now we can move on. And... uh, and we'll, and we'll talk about that kind of thing in the future, all right? We can, you know, if we, if we have a Wednesday night to burn, maybe we'll break this thing down, uh, break that, that, that silly thing down, of this thing down verse by verse. But we're not going to do that today. Today, like I said, we are in Romans. And uh, quick uh, to catch us up to where we are, of course, after laying out the miserable fallen condition of humanity uh, and then nailing down the fact that that includes the Jews, Paul stresses that man's greatest need is righteousness. We need to be right before God. And the Jews felt uh, felt special because uh, God had chosen them as his people and given them his laws. But Paul points out that all that does is make them more guilty because God's requirements were spelled out for them and they didn't do any better than the rest of the world at acting in a way that pleased God. Um, Then he masterfully explains the problem, as he gets further into this book, that the problem, mankind's problem, is the sin nature. The law was there to show us just how corrupt we have become, how far we have fallen from God's ideal, but tells us that this is all the result of the fall. And it goes all the way back to Adam. We were all in Adam when he fell, when he sinned. And therefore, we were all born. We inherited this condition. And we all died in him. But Christ, the second Adam, came to pay the price for man's disobedience. And just as sin and death entered the world by one man, Adam, uh, forgiveness, righteousness, and life come to all who believe in Christ, the second Adam. All come through one man, Christ. Uh, His point is, is that it is not a new set of rules that we need, but a new birth, a new nature. 
and tells us that this is what God gives us when we trust in the finished work of Christ. So the problem is, is not. He you know, makes the observations in Romans chapter 1. Look at all the garbage that's going on. Here's what men and women are doing, and it's, it's terrible. It's terribly corrupt. It's terribly wrong. Uh, but his message is not, and so we've got to try harder to do better. Points out Israel's history. You had it all spelled out for you. You had the law. You had the prophets. You had, these, uh, you had every advantage, and you couldn't do it either. So don't expect the world to be like that. There's something deeper at work here. It's your nature. It's who you are, not what you are doing. And so the solution is to become somebody else. And only God can do that. And only through the new birth. And that's only through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. So then he spends parts of chapter uh, 7 and 8 wrestling with the disturbing reality of this, of this tension which is, all right, I believe I received a new nature when I uh, trusted in Christ. Why do I still find myself attracted to the things that displease God? No matter how hard I vow and how determined I am to do the right thing, I find myself doing the wrong thing. Um, No matter how many times I swear off the wrong thing, uh, I find myself doing it. And Paul says the problem is the flesh because we didn't get a new body when we got born again. We got a new spirit. And that spirit is drawn toward God. And our flesh is still drawn away from God. And so the key is the renewed mind. To set our minds on the thing of the spirit, on the things of the spirit, so that we'll walk after the spirit rather than on the flesh. So, uh, and then he says uh, to be living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Remember, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken your mortal body. Uh, I, I made the case as strongly as I could that I do not believe that verse is talking about the general resurrection. It just doesn't fit in the context. It's talking about infusing us with new life in this body to empower us to live a life that is pleasing to God and effective for ministry. All right, this is still review. We're, we're catching up here. Then he spends three chapters talking about the Jews. And he... Uh, he talks about his love for them, just how badly he wants to see them saved, and, some, and then spends some time explaining some things about them. And uh, his lament is that the very people that God used to bring the Savior into the world have rejected that Savior. And the people who are benefiting from the Savior being brought into the world are the ones the Jews consider their enemies. He quotes Old Testament scripture after scripture, pointing out that God had told them all along he planned to save the Gentiles. This shouldn't have taken them by surprise. He also, uh, and and this this was really key, when, when when people talk about the fate of the Jews, well, how can God, you know, if they're God's chosen people and he used them all these years, then how could God abandon them to this fate? He didn't. His point, his point, the, the point that Paul makes here is that not all Jews were Jews. Not all of Israel were true Israel. It was always, it was never a, ma- never a matter of being born a Jew. It was the, to be God's chosen people and be in right relationship had nothing to do with their physical lineage and everything to do with their faith. That's what chapter 4 is about when he talks about the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, Uh, So here we are. The Jews felt threatened. They felt like Christianity was a rejection 
of Judaism, of everything they'd always held dear, when actually Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Jesus himself said that, remember? He said, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment of the law. It's not just the law, the law and the prophets. He didn't say, I come to, didn't come to throw this away, turn it upside down. I am what all of these things were leading to. All of these things were pointing to me. And the bottom line is this, that Israel needs Jesus. Israel needs the gospel just like everyone else. And as we ended with last week, someone has to preach it to them. They need the gospel, but, and they, you know, they, what they do is they need to believe, but how shall they believe, or sorry, they need to call on Jesus, but how shall they call on him in whom they have not heard, right? They, they need a preacher. And so we ended last week talking about, or nearly, you know, came to, uh, this is about where we ended up, which this is what we do. We live the gospel, we preach the gospel, uh, because it's not just the Jews that need to hear it before they can believe. There are exceptions to it. Uh, God meets people in dreams. Uh, I believe that uh, Revelation points out that at some point angels may be preaching the gospel. But meantime, it's really up to us. When we looked at the scripture that the straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few there be that find it, uh, I'm convinced that what that means is not that few people will be saved. It's simply that few people find it on their own. The rest of them need to be led there. And it's up to you and me to lead them. Right? Now, he, uh, he wraps up chapter 10, again by quoting several OT passages from Psalms, from Deuteronomy, and uh, a lot from Isaiah. And the point of which is just that God is just because he always intended to save the Gentiles. He knew it would provoke Israel to jealousy. And it is not God's fault that the Jews persisted in stubborn disobedience. And it's also, it's crucial to recognize uh, that their stubborn disobedience was nothing more or less than the product of their unbelief. Okay? Probably the most important passage in Romans chapter 10 and possibly the most important passage in the whole book of Romans are verses 9 and 10, which let me read them again, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation if you want to know how to be saved those verses tell you all right but um, the verse that sums up and really gets at the heart of everything Paul is writing about with regard to the fate of the Jews is the very next passage it says this, I'm now I'm in Romans 10, 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's he saying? Jew, Greek, everybody gets saved the same way. Now, in chapter 11, he begins a shift toward cautioning the Gentile believers because, uh, you know, he's made the case now that it's, it's, it's sad, it's tragic, but here, 
God's chosen people, the one he chose for this mission, bringing his word and bringing the Savior into the world, they've rejected Jesus. And, but what has happened is this opened a door, for the, a door of opportunity for the Gentiles to receive him. And they are. They're receiving him, him in droves. And now Israel's looking at the Gentile world, world and starting to think, wait, that's our Jesus that they're enjoying. Uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, it starts off as a very Jewish thing, but then once the door was open to the Gentiles, the Jews began to reject it because the Gentiles didn't come in the Jewish way. Uh, a lot of this is just pure jealousy. And uh, Paul, let me just read this before I say anything about it. We'll read the first six verses, Romans uh, chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Uh, The election of grace. I don't want you to read any more into the word election than Paul is writing here. There's a, I'll throw a couple of fun words at you that you can use to uh, impress your work, workmates, friends, Facebook world, and everything else. Uh, exegesis is, is what we call reading the text and pulling meaning out of it. Just start with the text, and you get your meaning, you get the doctrine, the beliefs out of what you are reading. Eisegesis is when you go to the text and you bring your own view, your own beliefs, and your own doctrine, and you read those into the text. We all do it to an extent. And, and, and it's, not, it's not all bad because if you read the whole Bible and you've got a well-rounded view of Scripture, here's what I mean. If I just read this verse, uh, they're saved according to the, the, the election of grace. Okay. Well, election then, that's how, that's, how do we determine who gets saved? Well, it's, it's, it's all about election, it's predestination. Those two words are kind of uh, all, uh, very often used uh, with one another. And, and the, the idea, and what I call the hard Calvinist position, is, is, is simply this. Who's going to be saved? God has already chosen those who's, who are going to be saved. The only thing, the only thing that determines whether somebody's going to be saved is whether God elected them to salvation. And it's a very disturbing doctrine to me. Especially if you just read that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then the Calvinists would say, well, God is only going to make certain people call on him. But you see... The word election used in this phrase has, has nothing to do with that. It's the election of grace. Let me explain myself. It's simply the recognition. It starts with this. The, the recognition that we cannot save ourselves. And once we realize this, we also see that we didn't come up with God's plan to save us. We didn't reach out to him first. He planned the whole thing out way ahead of time. Uh, the opposite of the election of grace would, be, would, be, would, would not be uh, what, what some might think. It would be more like this. 
we've humbly somehow come to the realization there's nothing I can do to be good enough for God. And so I have to come up with this way of getting God's attention and begging him to do something to get me out of this mess. But the election of grace says God saw your problem even before it was a problem and elected to do something about it whether you respond to it or not. Do you understand? This is, here, I'll throw another fun word at you. Superlapsarianism. Do you know what that is? That is the doctrine that God's plan of salvation, including the crucifixion of Jesus, was in place long before the fall because God foresaw, uh, uh, would have foreseen the fall. What does the Bible tell us in Revelation? He was the lamb slain when? Before the foundation of the earth. Peter puts it this way. It's even more explicit in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's what election is. Okay, the election of grace. It's simply saying that uh, God made the first move. God elected to save us, and when we respond in faith to that saving work, we become the elect. All right? Now, back to chapter 11 in Romans, and we are going to pick it up in verse 11. I say then, have they, stumbled, uh, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, he's talking about uh, the Jews now, right? And their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? I'll come back and explain this in a second. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke, provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off 
Sorry, for if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? What is all this? I think you're getting, I think you're following it. The idea, of course, that Israel was this olive tree that God planted. And everything he gave them, all of his plans, the roots of this tree... But their response, most of them, was unbelief. Paul is saying, look, the Jews made this mistake. God chose us. We must, must be special. We're covered no matter what. And Paul's saying, no, their unbelief cost them, and they were cut off. But don't you Gentiles think, what he's cautioning against now is for the Gentiles say, wow, God looked at us and he liked us better. So he cut the branches off of Israel and he grafted us in in their place. We must be special. And Paul's like, no. <laughs> their unbelief cost them their place in the tree. It's your belief that gets you placed in that tree. And if you fall into unbelief, he'll cut you off like he did them. Meanwhile, here's the great news. There's plenty of room for more grafts in this tree. You weren't even part of this people. You were kind of a wild olive tree, and you got grafted into this cultivated one. And you're thriving. Imagine what the original branches, if they come out of their unbelief and start to respond in belief, these were the ones who were created for that tree in the first place. It's going to be even more glorious when the Jews come to saving faith. This is what Paul foresees in the future, and he's excited about it. He's saying, if they're turning, and he's acknowledging, look, they're turning away and rejecting this, is having a good side effect. And the main one is, it's opened the door to the Gentile world. And that's exciting. So if a bad thing like the Jews rejecting Christ can have such a great effect as the Gentiles turning to Christ, how much of a good thing will it be when the Jews themselves embrace Christ? it's going to have an even better effect. He can bring good out of bad. He can certainly bring good out of good. And he reminds him that it is the very root, Israel, that supports the grafted branches. How much more robust then will these natural branches be when they come to belief in Christ? Let me pick it up here really quickly in verse 25 because there's something I have to get to or this message won't make any sense. Verse 25. Uh, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. What? As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. As For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these who have also been disobedient, that through the these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Let me stop there and just point out a couple things. Number one, again, the context. If we're not going to be reading something into it, uh, you know, being eisegetes, we want to be exegetes, we read it. I'm looking at verse 26, and so all Israel would be saved. Well, if my my, uh, hobby belief is, is just that, that God is going to save all of Israel because they're his chosen people. So somehow, somehow all Israel's going to be saved. Then this is going to be my proof text. But 
everything going before it denies that. Not all Israel has ever been Israel. And that part's not going to change. What he's saying, it, it's, all he's saying is this. Any Israeli who's going to be saved, any Jew, who's, any Israelite, any Jew who's going to be saved is going to be saved this way. That's all he's saying. Okay? Uh, and, then, and, then, and then verse 29 when it says the gifts and callings of God are uh, irrevocable or irrevocable if you prefer or without repentance as I, said, I think it says in the old King James. That's something we can look at uh, later on when we get to the ministry gifts and the gifts of the Spirit because I think there's an application there but again in context what he's saying here is that God's love and his mercy and his gift of grace that he poured out on the Jews is still there and available for them. He still has a plan and a purpose. They still have to respond to it. So uh, when we get to this, we just read verse 32. God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. We're all in the same boat. The only way any of us are going to be saved is through the finished work of Jesus Christ, his mercy, his grace. He nails that down. We have reached the end of the theological part of Romans. It has been 11 straight chapters of pure doctrine, and you will not find a longer passage on doctrine anywhere else in the New Testament. And then he wraps up chapter 11 with praise and worship. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the, uh, be the glory forever. He has presented this thing, and he has done a superb job. I mean, this is the, I keep saying Paul did this. You understand. I couldn't disagree more with the stuff that I read at the beginning of this message from that Bible study leader. God did write the Bible. When we read the word inspired, all scripture is inspired uh, that word really means God breathed. And it might not have been, has been as clinical as taking dictation, but God really did superintend the writing of these scriptures and the preservation of these scriptures. So when I say Paul, please understand, I know it was God through Paul spelling this out. This would be, for the theologian, you, you, this is the kind of thing you would read that would make you think, no, no man could have written this. It's spelled out too well. Uh, and there's some difficult stuff, as we have discovered, but Paul, like I said, for 11 chapters, this is his systematic theology. Here is the mess mankind is in. Here is how God fixed it. Here is our role. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves, but faith in what God has done to save us is absolutely necessary. And it all hinges on Christ's perfect righteousness and Christ's perfect obedience in going to the cross. And if we will confess him as our Lord, and believe that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. New birth, Holy Spirit, he has done all of this stuff, but guess what? The Jews rejected him, and that's too bad. But God had a plan to save the Gentiles all along. The good news is, now the Jews are getting jealous of the Gentiles, and God's going to open that door back up, and he's going to graft Israel back into this. He's going to save them just like he saved the Gentiles. Everybody gets saved the same way. There's the theology, and now look at this, chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
That therefore, when it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that may be the most important therefore in the Bible. Because, you know, many of you have heard this. Whenever you see the word therefore, go back and see what it's there for, right? Therefore, what, what, therefore, what therefore? Because of what? Because of chapters 1 to 11. Here is God's plan of salvation. Here is how God is going to redeem mankind from the curse of the fall. Look at everything he has done. He planned it from the beginning, watched over his word to perform it over centuries, brought Jesus, fulfilled his will in Jesus, raised him from the dead, completed his whole plan of salvation. Why? Because he loves us. He did all of that. All we have to do is respond, respond in belief. So, or therefore, I urge you, brethren, and now for the rest of the book, uh, apart from some personal greetings and stuff, what we have is the practical application. This is when he shifts into, since all of these things are true, this is how we should live now. And this is where he starts. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, proving what is that good and perfect, acceptable will of God. What does that mean? Praise and worship team, come on up here. He's already told us, he's already told us how important preaching the gospel is. Remember, uh, they've got to uh, hear. Somebody's got to preach so that they can hear. They've got to hear so they can believe. They've got to believe so they can call on him. They've got to call on him to be saved. Now, I left one ingredient out of that passage on purpose, both when I reviewed it earlier and now. And if you can identify the ingredient I left out, and I left it out on purpose so we can come back to it in the future, in the near future, but I have something specific in mind. But if you can identify the ingredient I left out, I have a shiny dollar coin for you, for the first person, not everybody, but for the first person who identifies the ingredient I left out of that, of that sequence. And it's on one end of the sequence. So he's told us how important preaching is because they're not going to get saved without us preaching. Now he's reminding us how important it is to live the gospel. We preach the gospel. We live the gospel. It is living the gospel uh, that puts us in a position where our preaching can be responded to and respected. When he says prove it, what he's saying is live it out in such a way that the people you are preaching to can see that you're taking it seriously. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.